Yes, please. Uh, hit, Bobby and his family will be out by a table out by the front door, so they have some more information. And so be sure to stop by there on your way out this morning. All right. Well, yes, we are uh, continuing in our series here, uh, welcoming the gifts of the Spirit. As Pastor Rich mentioned last week, we are nearing the end of it. Uh, in fact, today's message will be the last Sunday where we specifically teach on the gifts themselves, because uh, next week, Pastor Chris is going to lead a panel discussion uh, with some different members in our body talking about what the gifts have looked like in their own life. And then the week after that, as Alex just said, Pastor or uh, Dr. Sam Storms will be with us to finish out this series. And that morning, he's going to talk about this idea of Jesus being our perfect model for ministry. Now, originally, the goal of this series was to hit most of, if not all of the gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament. And certainly over the last several months, we have covered quite a lot of them. Now, unfortunately, in the end, we will not look at every single gift that is mentioned. Uh, and even with that, we've argued in this series that the lists themselves most likely are not exhaustive and that there are probably other gifts of the Spirit which aren't specifically mentioned, things like intercession or hospitality or even some of the artistic gifts. So again, because of that, we encourage you to search the Scriptures and to continue to study these things on your own. But this morning, we do want to try to look at three additional gifts that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, and that is word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and dis, uh, discernment or uh, distinguishing of spirits. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you now to go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, if you need to borrow one of our pew Bibles or chair Bibles, that's found on page 959. And uh, once you find it, go ahead and stand as I read today's passage. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healings by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Lord, we do invite you now to speak to us through your word. We ask that your spirit would come. He would give us uh, wisdom and understanding. Lord, that he would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know you, to love you, and to obey you. And so we ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. So when it comes to talking about the gifts, one of the immediate challenges we face, particularly here in this passage, is that Paul mentions this long list of gifts but he doesn't necessarily define them for us. You see, some of the gifts are fairly obvious based on their name. For example, uh, working of miracles or gifts of healing. 
Other gifts, if they're not obvious based on their name, uh, they're at least explained in greater detail later on, like what we see with prophecy and tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. However, though, there are still some that uh, we're left with this challenge of, uh, in terms of trying to understand what exactly Paul meant when he mentioned them. And that's maybe particularly true of the gifts that we're going to look at today. And so because of that, I want to be up front and I want to say that we can't be super dogmatic as we try to define them. The best that we can do is to try to look at the context of 1 Corinthians and then to compare that with what we see the Spirit do in people and other parts of the Scriptures. And so starting with this first one here, word of wisdom, or what the ESV says there is utterance of wisdom, what exactly is this? Well, again, just to be clear, we can't be dogmatic. But what some have suggested is that a word of wisdom is just an accumulation of wisdom that someone picks up throughout their life, like what we see exemplified in the book of Proverbs. Or perhaps think of someone with salt and pepper hair, that kind of wisdom, wisdom that comes with age and experience. Um, As part of that, someone who has that view might try to tie it or link it to something like the gift of teaching, right? Like obviously a good Bible teacher is someone who has lots of wisdom and lots of knowledge. However, though, there are others who would argue that, that, these, uh, that th- this, these gifts that are mentioned are more revelatory in nature, much like the gift of prophecy in which the Holy Spirit speaks to someone on behalf of or for the benefit of another. And personally, in studying these gifts over the last several years, um, that's where I have landed on them. It seems to me that all three of these, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and discerning of spirits are all three revelatory gifts by which the Holy Spirit speaks or reveals something to an individual believer for the common good. You see, again, verse 7 in this section describes uh, these gifts. It says this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You see, there's no doubt that when you look at this list of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, that they tend to be more overtly supernatural in nature. Again, working of miracles, healing, prophecy. And because of that, it would seem a little odd for Paul to talk about these being manifestations of the Spirit if he simply meant by word of wisdom and word of knowledge someone who knows a lot and who gives wise counsel. Again, I could be wrong, But it it just feels like something different is being described here in this chapter. In fact, in both chapter 13 and chapter 14, Paul mentions knowledge again. And in both of those places, he sets it alongside the gift of prophecy. And talking about both of these gifts, Professor J. Robert Clinton writes this. He says, The use of the Greek word logos prefacing both wisdom and knowledge suggests that these gifts are situational communications given by the Holy Spirit for that moment. Thus, we are not talking about people who are knowledgeable about the Bible or God, but are talking about a word which comes from God as wisdom or knowledge for a certain specific situation. And so with that in mind, as we look at this first gift that's mentioned here, word of wisdom, how might we define it? Or in other words, what exactly does it look like in practice? Well, I really like how one guy described it. He said this. He said, this gift is in action when God gives a situational word or message acutely applicable in a moment that provides insight for people into the next steps of their spiritual journey. These are practical instructions like go to this place or read this book. 
Wisdom is knowledge applied, and in this case, every time the supernatural situation word is given, you recognize that it came from Jesus' lips to you. I think another way that you could say it or think about it is it's divinely revealed wisdom for the moment. And because of that, it appears that its primary purpose is to give guidance and direction and even instruction to a believer in a particular situation. Again, if we were going to contrast this idea of wisdom, a word of wisdom, over and against just uh, what we might call general wisdom, we might say things like this. A word of wisdom is spontaneous, it's supernaturally revealed, or another way you could talk about it is there's a high awareness that this is coming from the Lord and not you. As well, it's situation and person-specific. In other words, it's uh, most likely this piece of wisdom would not apply to other believers in other situations, even if the situations or circumstances were similar in nature. Again, another distinction is that it's not the kind of wisdom that is accumulated throughout life or gained through memorizing different Proverbs. Now, if we contrast that with just normal, everyday biblical wisdom, we see that that kind of wisdom is more general rather than specific. It can be repeated and shared with lots and lots of people in different situations. When you're giving or sharing this kind of wisdom, there's perhaps a lesser degree of awareness that God is sovereignly intervening by giving you the right words for the right moment. As well, this kind of wisdom can be developed It can be accumulated throughout your life. And so those would just be some differences between them. And so with that said, what are some uh, perhaps possible examples of this gift being talked about or even used in the scriptures? Well, some have pointed to places like Acts 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. If you look at that story at first, we're told that an angel of the Lord tells Philip to go down a certain road out of Jerusalem. But then once Philip is on the road, it says in verse 29, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so at first, an angel is giving him direction and instructions about where to go and what to do. But now here in this verse, we're told that it's the Holy Spirit that's instructing him. And so perhaps this is an example of a word of wisdom in use in the scriptures. Another section in Acts that people have talked about is Acts 13, when the church was gathered and praying and fasting in Antioch. And there in verse 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, to be fair, in this example, we don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit spoke to them. It could have been something audible or something like that. But either way, it's clear that the church recognized the Spirit's voice and they made a decision and moved forward based on that. Similarly, some have pointed to Acts 16 when Paul is traveling in Asia. And in Acts 16, verse 6, it says, And and they went through the region of Philegra and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, again, like the last example, we don't know for sure how the Spirit spoke to them. Perhaps it was through a word of wisdom that he gave to Paul or to someone else on that missionary team. Again, we don't know, but what we do know is that the Spirit provided instruction and guidance about where to go and what to do. 
Um, one example of something like this that I heard this week came from a British missionary in Asia named Jackie Pullinger. Now, Jackie came to Christ as a young adult in the 1960s, and soon after that, she began to feel the Lord draw her towards the mission field. In fact, in describing it, she talks about how for months during this period, every time she prayed, she kept hearing the Lord say to her, go. But the problem was, is that uh, the problem that Jackie was facing is that the Lord hadn't told her where to go. And so because of that, she just felt really stuck. She didn't know what to do. She applied to a bunch of different mission organizations, but no one got back with her. And so one day she went and talked to uh, her vicar, uh, which if you don't know what that is, it's just a fancy word for Anglican bishop. And you know how the British, they got to be different from everyone else. They got to drive on the wrong side of the road. They got different words for pastors. But uh, basically, she goes and talks to her pastor and she lays out for him her problem and dilemma. And she said to him, look, every time I pray, the Lord tells me to go, but he's not being very helpful about where. He just simply says, go and I'll show you. And so because of that, I, I think I might just follow you around for a while. And the, the, the bishop or the vicar's like, no, 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 no. He says, why don't you get on the cheapest ship that you can find that is traveling to the most amount of countries and while you're on it, pray and ask the Lord to show you where to get off. And she says, as soon as he told her that, it was like a bell went off in her heart and she knew that that was exactly what she was supposed to do. And so shortly after that, Jackie got on a ship leaving England, and as she was going, the Lord told her to get off in Hong Kong. And that's where she has been serving now for the last 57 years. Now look, as a pastor and as a leader, clearly on the surface, that is terrible advice, right? <laughs> like, in today's context, if you gave that kind of counsel and advice, you would most likely be accused of spiritual abuse. I mean, look, I personally can't imagine telling a young single girl in the 1960s to get on a ship by herself and to get off wherever the Lord tells her. In fact, even Jackie in this interview that I watched when she talked about her experience, she acknowledges that reality. In the interview, she said, look, it would have been spiritual abuse if she wasn't convinced that what the vicar shared with her that day was in fact a word of wisdom from the spirit to her for her particular situation. And then right after saying that, Jackie made this comment that I think is really insightful. She said, you know, the thing about a word of wisdom is you can't use them twice. And again, if I'm understanding this gift correctly, I think she's right on about that. Words of wisdom can't be used twice. They are person and situation specific. Another place some have argued where we see a word of wisdom uh, being used is in Acts 15 with the Council of Jerusalem. In that chapter, we see that the early church is super stuck. They're at a crossroads in terms of what to do with the Gentiles who are becoming believers in Jesus. And so the church gathers together in, this, uh, in Jerusalem in this council to try to figure things out. And through that, some of the leaders, they finally come to a decision on how to move forward. And in describing their decision to the Gentile believers in a letter, it says this in Acts 15, 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep uh, yourself from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So we see here that the early church is in this place where they are kind of stuck. 
They're not totally sure what to do next or to how to proceed. And yet at this meeting, it appears the Spirit gives a word of wisdom on how they should move forward. And the way that the, the, the people there summarize or talk about it is by saying it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And what I think they mean by that is that they are acknowledging it was the Spirit who gave them the wisdom in that moment in order to make a decision. And one of the ways that they knew it was from the Spirit is that they had a peace about it. And I know that I personally have had some experiences like that, whether it's been in an elders meeting or some other kind of meeting or, or even in a counseling session where you feel stuck, you feel overwhelmed, you're not quite sure how to move forward. In fact, I remember this one particular moment like this. It, it was the first time that Faith and I had done premarital counseling with a couple. Now, look, we love this couple to death, and they don't go to our church, so I think it's okay to talk about them here. Um, I don't think they watch our service, but uh, there's no doubt with this couple, in terms of premarital counseling, they put us through our paces. I mean, I'm not sure I've ever met a couple who are more different personality-wise. I mean, they think differently. They feel differently. Um, both of them had different but equally challenging things from their childhood, which affected them. Um, they couldn't agree on where to have the wedding, who to invite to the wedding, or where to even go on their honeymoon. And so needless to say, there was a lot of tension and issues that we had to try to help them work through in the counseling. And this one particular night, I just remember they were completely stuck. We were stuck. It felt like their relationship was at an impasse, like this might be the breaking point. And I just remember being super overwhelmed and feeling unequipped in terms of knowing how to help them. And I just remember praying and begging the Lord, like, Lord, you got to help here. This is, not, this is not good. It's not headed in the right direction. And so if I remember right, we took like a bathroom break or something, and, and we came back together and we sat down. And as we started to talk, it was like all of a sudden the Lord gave Faith and I just the right words, the right wisdom for that moment. And honestly, I don't even remember what we said. All I know is we went from being completely stuck and hopeless to this place of, you know what? I think they're going to be all right. I think things are going to be okay. And again, if you would have asked Faith and I after that session, so like, how did you guys do that? We both would have been like, we didn't. It was definitely the Lord, not us. And so again, perhaps these verses and these stories are examples of what Paul meant by this gift, this phrase, word of wisdom. What about the next one, though, word of knowledge? Well, just like with word of wisdom, there are those in the body of Christ who would argue that Paul is just simply referring to someone who has gained a lot of knowledge over the years. And a word of knowledge is when they share that information with others. Again, they would argue that this is what Bible teachers or biblical scholars do. They share the knowledge that they have gained through hard work and study. But again, I'm not convinced of this. I'm not convinced that this is what Paul is talking about here. It just seems like a, a, he has a very specific manifestation of the Spirit in mind, which is spontaneous and circumstantial. Again, something that the Spirit reveals in the moment for a very specific purpose in someone's life. In fact, one author defined this gift this way. He said, this particular gift of the word of knowledge is a spiritual gift that allows the believer to supernaturally know something about a situation or a person. I'm very similar to that. Again, J. Robert Clinton defines it this way. 
The word of knowledge gift refers to the capacity or sensitivity of a person to supernaturally perceive revealed knowledge from God, which otherwise could not or would not be known and apply it to a situation. Now, with those definitions in mind, if we compare and contrast this to word of wisdom, what we find out is that these gifts are similar and probably often work together. But if we were going to differentiate them, we might say this, a a word of wisdom is about instruction, whereas a word of knowledge is about information. Now, with this gift, we see all kinds of examples of it in the scriptures, including the old and the new. Um, One specific place where we see this in the Old Testament is in 2 Kings 5 with Elisha and his servant Gehazi. There the Spirit reveals to Elisha that Gehazi did something sinful that he wasn't supposed to do. We see something very similar uh, of that in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. There in that story, this married couple sells a piece of land and they bring the money and lay it down at the apostles' feet. And yet in doing so, they are being dishonest because they are pretending that they brought all of the money from the cell when actually they held some of it back. And in verse 3, when Ananias brings the money to the apostles, it appears Peter is given supernatural knowledge that he is lying to him and that this isn't the full amount. And so this too looks like another example of perhaps a word of knowledge being used to reveal someone's hidden sin. Now, if we keep looking in the scriptures, we see other examples of this where it reveals hidden sin, but instead of it leading to judgment like those two examples, it actually leads someone to salvation. For example, one of the best illustrations, I think, of a word of knowledge is with Jesus and the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now, I know when it comes to Jesus, some of you will object and you'll say, well, of course, Jesus knew stuff about people because he's God. He knows everything. Well, I agree with you that Jesus was God, is God, and always will be God. But in terms of living his earthly life, I'm not sure it's perhaps accurate to say that he knew everything about everybody all the time. We know for sure that Jesus temporarily gave up or set aside certain divine rights and privileges when he became a man. For example, we all believe that one of the divine attributes of God is that he's omnipresent, meaning that he's everywhere at once. And yet clearly when Jesus took on human flesh, that temporarily stopped being a reality for him. The same is true with the attribute omnipotence. Omnipotence states that God is all powerful. And yet we know that Jesus himself got tired, that he had to eat in order to sustain himself. It also appears that there were times that he couldn't do something because of people's lack of faith. And so if he set aside temporarily while on earth his omnipotence and his omnipresence, I don't think it's too much of a leap to say that Jesus also set aside his omniscience. In other words, his ability to know everything all at once. In fact, we know from the Gospels that Jesus grew and he learned things. We also know that he asked questions in order to gain information. I mean, it even explicitly states that he doesn't know the day or the hour when he will return. And so if that's true, what are we to make of these moments uh, in Jesus' life when he knew something about someone that he otherwise shouldn't have known? Well, personally, I'm persuaded that the gospel writers make it clear that Jesus knew those things because they were were revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, again, we've talked about this issue before, specifically in our Luke series, and even in this current series, series earlier on. And so if this is a new thought for you, I'm sorry I don't have time to explain it more. But the bottom line is this. We believe Jesus lived his life and did what he did, including the miraculous, as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, in saying that, we don't in any way think the scriptures teach that Jesus ever ceased to be fully God, but rather he chose voluntarily while on earth to not use his divine rights or privileges. Now, to be clear, Jesus did perfectly walk in the spirit. He was perfectly filled with the spirit. He had the spirit without measure in a way that I don't think you or I will ever walk in. And because of that, Jesus did things you and I will most likely never do. But even still, the principle of him being a man empowered by the Spirit, I think, is applicable to us. And so with that in mind, let's come back to the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. What we see in that story is that Jesus, as he's passing through Samaria with his disciples, he, we find out there that he needs to take a break. And so he sits down by this well, and he sends his disciples on into the city to buy some food. And while he's sitting there by this well, hanging out, this woman shows up to get water. And Jesus starts engaging her in a conversation. And if you keep reading, what you find out is that they're going back and forth talking about water. She's talking about physical water. Jesus is telling her about living water, and she seems confused. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus is like, hey, go call your husband and come here. And the woman replies in verse 17 by saying, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you have just said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. It's like, yeah, you think? (laughs) Um, He's not just a prophet. He's the prophet of prophets. But if you keep reading, what you find out is that this moment is really important. In fact, I would argue that it shifts the conversation. In some ways, this this knowledge that's being revealed becomes the key that unlocks the door in order for her to believe in Jesus. In fact, right after this, she starts talking about this coming Messiah. And Jesus flat out tells her, he says, I who speak to you am he. And then right after that, in verse 28 of chapter 4, we're told, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town. And said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And so what we see here is that because Jesus shared this word of knowledge with her about her life and even about her hidden sin, instead of it being a cause of judgment or condemnation, it actually leads to an evangelistic moment. By which not only does she come to Christ, but so do many, many others that she shares with in her city. In fact, verse 42 tells us that they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And we see something very similar to this in John chapter 1 with Jesus and Nathaniel. There, I think Jesus uses a word of knowledge to convince Nathanael that he's the Messiah. He's like, yo, Nathanael, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael responds by saying, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. 
And so again, what we see here is that one of the primary purposes or outcomes of the gift of a word of knowledge is that it can lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ. And one example of this that I came across recently uh, was in John Wimber's book, Power Evangelism. And in there, he tells a story about how one time he was on an airplane flying from Chicago to New York. And as he was sitting there, uh, he, he began just looking around the cabin of the plane, and all of a sudden, his eyes kind of passed by this one particular guy. And as he did, he saw written across the guy's face the words, adultery. Now, Wimber's clear. He didn't see those words with his physical eyes. In other words, no one else on the plane would have saw that. But rather, he, it was the Holy Spirit was revealing this to him through his spiritual eyes. And so Wimber talks about how he's just kind of like sitting there rubbing his eyes like, what, what's going on? And finally, the, he's staring at the guy, and the guy's like, dude, what do you want? What are you looking at? And as soon as the guy said it, Wimber says that he heard a woman's name pass through his mind. And so he leans across the aisle, and he says, does the name Jane mean anything to you? And then next, Wimber says the guy's face turned white, and he was like, we got to talk. And so the guy gets up, and Wimber follows him, and apparently this is, I've never seen this before, it's one of those massive 747 planes that used to have a cocktail lounge in them. And so they go there, and they sit down, and the guy says to him, who told you that name? And Wimber just kind of blurts out, he's like, uh, God told me the name, and, and he told me also you're having an affair with her. And as soon as he said that, he says, the guy broke down and was like, you're right. What should I do then? What should I do then? And so Wimber shared the gospel with him, and the guy in that moment prayed to receive Christ. And then Wimber is like, okay, I think you need to go share this with your wife. And the guy's like, when? And he's like, well, you better just do it right now. And so they walk back to their seats, and the guy shares the whole story with his wife, and not only about the affair, but also about what just happened on the airplane. And so Wimber talks about how like, they like, keep looking back at him, like, that guy? That, yeah, that guy was the one who did it. And so they get off the plane, and, and they talk for a few moments, and, and Wimber ends up giving them his Bible because they didn't have one. Now, I don't know what you think about that. That's a pretty crazy story, right? But it's really not that much different from what Jesus does with the woman at the well in John 4. And I know some of you are like, yeah, Nick, but that's John Wimber, and I don't know. He seems kind of suspect. I'm not so sure about him. Well, for those of you in that place, let me give you another example with a good old Baptist named Charles Spurgeon. Now, I think Chris alluded to this in his sermon on prophecy a couple months ago, but, but Spurgeon for sure, even though he was probably a cessationist, for sure had moments where this kind of thing happened. In fact, in his autobiography, he tells this story about how one time he was in the middle of a sermon, and he points to this guy, and he begins calling out uh, some shady stuff that this guy was involved with. And later on in that autobiography and describing the event, this is the, the guy who it happened to talking about it to a friend. Here's what he said. Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me. And in his sermon, he pointed to me and he told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I kept my shop open on Sundays, which in 1800s England was a big no-no. And I did, sir. I should not have minded that, but he also said that I took nine pence the Sunday before and that there was a four pence profit out of it. I did take nine pence that day, and four pence was just the profit. But how he should have known that, I could not tell. And then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first, I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards I went, and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. 
And then right after that, Spurgeon writes this. He says, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except I believe that I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that persons have gone away and said to their friends, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent of God to my soul or else he could not have described me so exactly. And not only so, but I have known many instances in which the thoughts of men have been revealed from the pulpit. I have sometimes seen persons nudge their neighbor with their elbow because they got a smart hit. And they have been heard to say when they were going out, the preacher told us just what we said to one another when we went in the door. Relax, I don't think that's going to happen this morning, but uh, in case it does, I don't know. Um, now, personally, I, I don't have a success story of doing this kind of thing when it comes to evangelism, although I did try recently when I was out on campus with Pastor Mike. Uh, we were at Ohio State a couple months ago, and, and it was this one particular afternoon. It was kind of the end of the day, and we were finishing up. And Mike was uh, in a long conversation with this one guy. And so I kind of wrapped up a conversation with a different person and then joined their uh, conversation. And, and as soon as I joined it, the guy then told us that uh, he was actually a part of the LDS church, or what has historically been called Mormonism, which just FYI, he shared with us, that's not what they want to be called anymore. Um, apparently, they don't like the word Mormon. Um, but anyway, at that point uh, in the conversation, uh, things really shifted. And we started just intellectually debating Jesus' deity and, and other important theological topics that Christians and LDS disagree on. And honestly, things just felt really, really stuck. And so I just began praying. I'm like, all right, God, you got to do something here because this is clearly not going anywhere. And all of a sudden, I had this thought, ask him if the name John is meaningful to him. And then actually, right after that, I heard the name Smith. Now, immediately, I start talking myself out of this, because I'm like, wait a second. John Smith's like one of the most common names that exist uh, in the world. And not only that, I got kind of mixed up for a moment, and I thought uh, that John Smith was the guy who founded LDS. Later, I realized it was Joseph Smith. But, but either way, I was like, I'm not asking him about the full name. I was like, I'll try John, because that feels safe, but I don't know about John Smith. So I, I said, hey, does the name John mean anything significant to you? And he thought about it for a minute, and he was like, no, not really. And then all of a sudden, he was like, well, actually, I do have a close friend who I've lost touch with named John, and he lives down in Florida. And I was like, oh, really? What's his last name? And no joke, the guy said Smith. And I was like, look, ah, I was like, look, man, you're probably not going to believe me, but I promise you, I felt like the Lord told me to ask you about the name John Smith, but I chickened out because I thought, there's no way. Now, obviously, that didn't have a significant impact on the guy because he was probably thinking, yeah, right, bro, like, I'm not, I'm not buying it. But I can tell you that it definitely had an impact on me because I was like, shoot, I, I, I should have trusted the Lord. I should have just went for it because maybe that would have been the thing that caused this guy to open up. And to be willing to, to talk more about Christ and to receive the gospel. And so it's kind of a fail story, but in hindsight, it was a good learning lesson. And so clearly evangelism is one of the purpose or outcomes, I think, of this gift. I think the Spirit also uses this gift when he wants to heal somebody. For instance, in Acts, 4, uh, Acts 14, that might be an example of that. There, Paul is, we're told he's preaching in a city called Lystra. In Acts 14, 8, it says this. 
Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, again, we can't be dogmatic here, but what do you think it means when it says that Paul looked at him and saw that he had faith to be made well? Well, again, I don't know for sure, but I certainly think the Spirit could have given Paul a word of knowledge which revealed that information to him. And because of that, Paul acted on it, and the man was healed. Again, I've personally seen this kind of thing happen before. I think another uh, purpose of this gift is simply to encourage someone. I know the first time uh, someone did this to me, that was the result. Um, Basically, about 13, 14 years ago, I was uh, new to Linworth. And at that time, I was going through a pretty severe season of depression and anxiety and even insomnia. And so this one Sunday, I was here, and I was just dying inside because of all this. And yet very few people in the church uh, or in my life knew what was going on. And all of a sudden, during worship, this older gentleman kind of, who I didn't know very well, kind of snuck up behind me, you know, like that, like, oh, what are you doing, you know? And he was like, hey, I I just feel like the Lord told me to come over here and pray for you because it seems like you have something going on. And so instantly, I just break down in tears because it was as if uh, I was like, oh my goodness, the Lord, he sees me. The Lord knows me. He knows intimately what's going on in my life. He sees the pain that I'm carrying. And he, not only that, but he cares enough to tell someone else that they come over and pray for me. Now, the depression and anxiety didn't totally stop that day, but I can tell you just knowing that the Lord saw me gave me the strength and the encouragement that I needed until it did. And so again, encouragement could be another outcome or purpose behind this gift. Now, obviously, you and I know that there is a demonic counterfeit of this gift. There's also a human scam version of it where someone just looks up a bunch of information on you on Facebook and is like, oh, do you have a dog? Uh, let me, have you been to Myrtle Beach lately? It's like, yeah, you looked at my pictures, right? Now, the demonic counterfeit is seen with things like mediums and psychics and palm readers, which the scriptures warn against. And the scriptures warn against them not because they are fake and phony, but because they are real. And people using them are using, uh, they're, they're kind of channeling demonic power in order to gain knowledge that they have. And really, we shouldn't be surprised that demons can counterfeit or mimic gifts of the Spirit. In fact, we see this in Exodus when Moses is uh, performing the plagues. Again, if you read that section, he, Moses performs different signs and wonders which result in these plagues. But then so do the Egyptian magicians. They, they can do the same. Now, if you read the story, there eventually becomes a point when the, the Moses does things that the magicians are unable to do. But even still, the point is that demons have real power, and people can access that power to counterfeit or mimic the things of the Spirit, which is why we need this third gift that we want to talk about today, and that is discerning spirits, or again, what the ESV calls distinguishing between spirits. Now, I can't go super in-depth on this one because we're running out of time. And in fact, just a warning, it's probably going to be a long Sunday. Sorry, Cross Crew, but I I feel like I need to get through this. Wayne Grudem defines this gift like this. He says, it's a special ability to recognize the influence of the Holy Spirit or of demonic spirits in a person. 
I think Sam Storm's comments are also helpful on this. He says, although we are not given a definition of this gift, I'm inclined to believe that it's the ability to distinguish between what the Holy Spirit does and what another spirit, demonic, or perhaps even the human spirit does. Not all miracles or supernatural displays are produced by the Holy Spirit. Paul has in mind here a special ability that is fundamentally intuitive or subjective in nature. The spiritual gift of distinguishing of spirits or discerning between spirits is probably a supernaturally enabled sense or feeling concerning the nature and source of the spirit. Um, One example of this, I think, is in Acts 16 when Paul is in the city of Philippi. There in verse 16, it says, As we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So there we see an example of a demonic spirit mimicking what the Holy Spirit can do by, telling, by foretelling the future, what we would call prophecy. And not only that, but the other thing that's interesting is that the Spirit was also causing this girl to proclaim that Paul and his friends were servants of the Most High God and that they proclaimed the way of salvation, which was actually a true statement. However, though, Paul knew that the source of her knowledge and power was not from the Holy Spirit, but rather was from a demonic spirit. And so because of that, he cast the spirit out. I think we see this also perhaps in Acts 13 with Paul and Elamus, the magician. As well, perhaps with Peter, uh, he might use this gift in Acts 8 with a different magician named Simon. There, Peter is able to discern Simon's motives for wanting the power of the Spirit, and he recognizes that those motives are not pure, but rather selfish. And so again, what the Holy Spirit does through this gift is that he reveals the source or the power behind this or that person or teaching or even miraculous event. You see, as well, I think this gift can be used to help weigh or test prophetic words that are given. The Apostle John, I think, talks about this in 1 John 4.1 when he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. I think with that, it can also be used to help expose false teaching or false teachers. I think another aspect of it is to help warn or protect people, either yourself or others. In fact, I have a friend in Minnesota who seems to operate in this gift pretty consistently. And I was talking to her this week, and I was like, you know, can you just describe for me a little bit about what this looks like or feels like in your life? And she was just like, well, you know, sometimes it happens when I meet somebody new, or sometimes it happens when I walk into a person's house or maybe a business or something like that, and and things just feel off. Perhaps they feel dark, or or maybe it feels a little heavy or oppressive. And sometimes it's caused her to leave places or it's caused her to be on high alert, especially when her kids are involved. And so again, I think this gift is to warn or to protect us from potential harm. Now she said there are other times when it goes the other way. She meets someone or goes somewhere and instead of feeling like things are off or that things are dark, instead she has a deep sense of peace. This this deep sense that the Lord's presence is here or is with this or that person. 
Now, my friend doesn't uh, personally experience it this way. She uh, just intuitively feels things deeply. But I've talked with others who say that at times they can actually see with their spiritual eyes the Holy Spirit on people. Or conversely, they can see demonic spirits on people. And I think with that, we also possibly see this gift used in the scriptures in order to identify what specific spirit is impacting someone. You see, if you study the times that Jesus frees an individual from a demonic spirit, or even Paul for that matter, what you find out is that they often know the name or at least what kind of spirit it is. For example, in Luke 13, we see a spirit listed there as a disabling spirit or an afflicting spirit. In Mark 9, Jesus delivers a boy by casting out what he calls a mute and deaf spirit. In Acts 16, which we just looked at, the spirit is called a spirit of divination. And so perhaps this too is another way this gift is used. Now as a quick side note, there are some who have talked about this idea of there being a general gift of discernment, which is broader than just dealing with discerning spirits. And I certainly think that that is a thing. Now, whether or not we call it a spiritual gift, I think there's room to disagree on that. But certainly there are people who have a natural ability to analyze things or to look for inconsistency or who can generally tell when someone is lying to them or is just kind of full of it. But again, I think that that is most likely different than what Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians 12. Again, these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, I think, tend to be more spontaneous They tend to be situational or specific, and they come uh, in a moment as a burst of revelation and power from the Spirit. And so whether we are talking about general discernment or very specifically the gift of discerning spirits, both are good and both are desperately needed in the body of Christ. And so with that, I just want to ask you, or as we close here, I just want to ask you, where are you at with all of this? I'm not just referring to the three gifts we looked at today, but but really with the entire series. Are you open and are you willing to be used by the Spirit in one of these gifts, in one of these areas? In other words, is your heart posture right now one in which you are earnestly or eagerly desiring the gifts of the Spirit, or are you more closed off or hesitant? Well, first, let me just say, if you're in that place of being more closed off or hesitant, or afraid, or confused even, I just want to say this. I I get that. I I understand that. I mean, look, as pastors, we realize that this series has pushed some of you. In fact, people have left our church over it, which makes us really sad. And so again, we know that for some of you, this has been a real challenge. And yet our encouragement to you is to be like the Bereans that we read about in Acts 17. When it says of them that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You see, the reality is, is we are a continuationist church, not because we like Sam Storms or Wayne Grudem, or even because we've had some cool experiences in our lives. No, we are a continuationist church because we are convinced that that's what the scriptures teach. And yes, there has been abuse and misuse when it comes to the things of the Spirit in the body of Christ. But again, the solution to abuse and misuse is not prohibition, but biblical correction. And so with that, I just want to encourage you to not let a negative or a confusing experience keep you from knowing and obeying the Spirit and the Scriptures. And look, we realize that for some of you, this may take time. 
Just because we are coming to the end of this series doesn't mean that you're necessarily ready to begin stepping out and trying some of these things. And that's okay. But if that is you, I would encourage you to examine yourself and to see what exactly is behind that. What's behind the hesitation that you feel? Is it really just confusion or even theological conviction? Or is it something different? Is it maybe fear or embarrassment or perhaps even unbelief? And so maybe for some of you, your action steps in coming out of this series will be uh, studying the scriptures some more. Maybe even reading some good theological books. Maybe for some of you, it'll be creating space to dialogue with the Lord about these things or to come and talk to one of us pastors. Or again, as Alex said, come to the Holy Spirit Conference and ask your question to Dr. Storms. But maybe for others of you, it's not really about those things, but instead it's a faith issue or it's an unbelief issue. Like maybe you just don't want to take a risk or maybe get involved or or get out of your comfort zone. And if that's you, maybe your action step coming out of this series is one of repentance, where you just sit before the Lord and you say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I know you tell us over and over again, do not fear, but Lord, my heart is full of fear. Help me. Now, maybe for others of you, that's not where you're at at all. For you, this series has been great. It's been encouraging. Maybe you were already theologically convinced before or have already had experience practicing the gifts of the Spirit. Or maybe for some of you, this series has been used by God to help you get there. And you're like, yeah, it really hasn't been that hard. It just kind of makes sense as you've been teaching. And if that's you, praise God. My encouragement to you is to keep eagerly desiring the gifts. Now, don't misuse them, but do desire them. Keep asking God to use you and to give you gifts in order to bless others. Keep putting yourself in situations where you need the Spirit's presence and power in order to see something fruitful happen. Whether it's in evangelism or prayer or teaching or showing someone mercy. Because look, the bottom line is this. If we want to be a church that is about the Spirit's work, then we have to be a church that's filled with the Spirit's power. Amen, right? You can clap for that. And so let's pray now and let's ask the Lord to do that, that we will become, that Linworth will become a church that is fruitful, that is faithful to the scriptures, and that is full of the Holy Spirit and that uses all the gifts that he desires for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for this series. It's been hard. I just confess, even as someone who's taught in it, it's been a challenge. But Lord, we want all that you have for us as a church. Lord, we see that the task that we have to reach this lost world is overwhelming. We need more of your presence, more of your power. So Lord, would you give us understanding? Would you give us courage to step out and to believe you and to to have, just be full of faith? I just think of the description of, of some of the disciples or some of the, the early uh, people in the church. It talked about them being full of faith and full of the Spirit. May that be true of us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name.